Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 41. And I'm coming at you a little bit uh, day late today. I things to do yesterday, so I didn't get a chance to record the podcast, but we're going to do it today, and here it is. Uh, the issue I want to talk about today actually was born out of a conference that I attended uh, on August 13th. It was a conference on nullification sponsored by the Abbeville Institute. If you're not familiar with the Abbeville Institute, I do some blogging over there, and I also run their podcast, so if you want to check that out, I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, if you're on my email list, you already received that uh, that information, but if you're not on the email list, you need to do that. Go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, and uh, sign up at the top. You get a free ebook, audiobook, and a PDF file of uh, forgotten founders, and so read by yours truly. So go and check that out. But at this particular conference on nullification, which was a, a great conference, by the way, a lot of good speakers, uh, great information, there were a couple of questions that were posed that I didn't get a chance to answer. Um, one was the idea of, uh, sovereignty and how this works in terms of state sovereignty. And the other was on, uh, secession. And I've already done a podcast on secession, but there's a particular way I want to answer this question that was posed because I think it's very important. Uh, so these two issues actually are, are some of the most important issues we, we have when discussing federalism and real federalism, and what that means, uh, and what how, how that works, right? So the idea of federalism, if you're not someone who's um, uh, used to or understands these terms, the Constitution maintained the Federal Republic of the Articles of Confederation. At least that's how it was sold to the states. And what that means is simply that it's a, it's a federation of states, and state is a conscious term that Jefferson used in the Declaration of Independence and that the founding generation used, they were 13 independent states. And if you look at the Treaty of Paris, which was agreed upon in 1783, each state was recognized individually by Great Britain when it came to independence. So you had 13 independent countries, essentially, in North America. And Jefferson said as much in the Declaration of Independence. Now, this was not an accident. Uh, so they, the founding generation viewed all of these states as independent republics. In fact, they said that these states, these free and independent states, are the same as the state of Great Britain. So just by saying that Great Britain is a state and saying that Virginia is a state or Massachusetts is a state or Georgia or New York, whatever it is, they're all the same. Delaware was a state. Little Delaware, three counties, was a state. The same as the state of Great Britain. 
In fact, Delaware seceded not only from Great Britain, but also from Pennsylvania in 1776. So each one of these states were free and independent with the authority to do what free and independent states may of right do, which was foreign policy and domestic policy. And so when you look at, and and this is part of the talk that I gave, uh, when you look at the nature, the structure of that union, and I'm not talking about the American Union, I'm talking about the Union of Great Britain and its relationship with the colonies, what you see is a federal structure. At least that's how the American colonists thought of it, and that's how the colonists thought of it all over the world, the British colonists, whether it was Jamaica or Ireland, in fact. They looked at it where the center, parliament, could by default regulate trade and then defend the colonies. But everything else, all other domestic concerns, were handled by the colonies themselves, whether it was printing money, tax policy, internal trade policy, all of those things were handled by the colonies. They set their own rules. And so the uh, the British could only do a couple of delegated powers. Now, the British Constitution is unwritten, and so this was just an unwritten rule that the British began violating, the Parliament began violating, beginning in 1765, essentially, or you might say 1764 with the Sugar Act. But then 1765, you get the Stamp Act, and things cascade from there downhill. So this is a very important concept to understand, to grasp the nature of that union, because when you move forward in time and you start looking at the Articles of Confederation and you look at the U.S. Constitution, it would maintain the same type of union, and that's very important to understand that federal union of independent states. Now, one of the questions was, and I can't remember how the question was posed, but the answer was what really really got to me, and it, it wasn't quite, quite accurate. It was on this nature of power in this new constitution. It said sometimes that the states gave up sovereignty in this new constitution, that they ceded some of their sovereignty to the central authority. Well, this is simply not true. So this idea of sovereignty is important. First of all, who is sovereign in the American political system? Well, it comes down to the people of the states, and this is a point I made in my talk about nullification. The people of the states, not the people in an aggregate, as John Marshall liked to say, but the people of the states are sovereign because the states were the only entities that could ratify this constitution. They are organic. They're created by the people themselves. When they reach a certain number of people, that's how a state is created. It's not created by the central authority. It's created by the people themselves. And so this is going to be very important when I talk about the second point. Okay. So the states didn't cede any sovereignty to the central authority. They still have it all. The people of the state still have all the sovereignty. In fact, Jefferson said this in the Declaration of Independence. He said that 
legislative power is incapable of annihilation because it returns to the people at large for their exercise. So the government, whether it's the state government or the general government, particularly the general government, the general government could be abolished, and yet the states would still exist, as Jefferson clearly says. The people of the states have a right to alter or to abolish any government. That is legitimacy, and that is sovereignty. The general government cannot abolish the states. Now, of course, they did it during Reconstruction, but they did it illegally during Reconstruction. And that's a whole other issue. How did this happen during Reconstruction? How did the Republican-controlled Congress during Reconstruction abolish the southern states, which they did at one point, by establishing martial law and saying these states were out of the Union until they did certain things to come back in the Union. That's a, that's a whole other issue, and I think I'll do a podcast on that. It's, it's actually very interesting constitutionally uh, and has a great impact moving forward on the way we view the powers of the states and the general government vis-a-vis each other. So the answer was, again, that states ceded some of their sovereignty. They cannot do that. Sovereignty cannot be divided. Either you have sovereignty or you don't have sovereignty. It cannot be divided. The states still have the sovereignty in this federal republic, in this union, even under the Constitution. In fact, as the, as the founding generation said, that federal republic was maintained by the Constitution when it was going through ratification. So if it hadn't done that, the Constitution would not have been ratified. If anyone thought that somehow this new central authority was going to usurp sovereignty from the states, it never would have been ratified. That's a very important concept to understand. So sovereignty, of course, is the ultimate authority. So how do we know that sovereignty was not ceded, that they didn't give up sovereignty? Because of the term granted or delegated. So the term granted is actually in Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution, where it says all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. Herein granted. In the Tenth Amendment, it uses the term delegated. Now, not expressly delegated, but delegated. And the reason expressly was not in the Tenth Amendment is simply because they thought it was redundant. And it was brought up when that amendment was going through um, the process of approval in Congress. Well, there was a move, some motion to insert expressly before delegated. And Roger Sherman said this is, this is irrelevant because everyone knows delegated means expressly delegated. Of course, the term expressly delegated was in the Articles of Confederation. So granted, how does this term clearly show that sovereignty has not been divided or ceded? You cannot grant sovereignty. You can grant a power, all legislative powers herein granted. Who has the power to grant them? The people of the states. And I often use this analogy when I'm teaching my my students on campus. If I was to say, okay, today, class, I'm going to grant you the authority to grade your own tests. Have I ceded that authority to the class? Have I given it up forever? No. I've simply granted it to the class at that time. 
So what happens? The students return all the tests. They're all 100s. And I can say, well, uh, I am rescinding that power to grade your tests because I still have the sovereignty. If I grant it, I can rescind it. I have not given up sovereignty. They did not take it from me and then have it forever till death do us part. No, I granted it to them, and that means I can rescind it. The states granted, as as the Constitution clearly said, it's a concept, it's a compact between states, so ratifying the same between states. The vote was by state in Philadelphia. The ratification was by states. So the states granted this legislative power to the central authority. And so then they can rescind that power at any time. They also granted, when it, when it said legislative, all legislative powers here and granted, only the powers, though, in that, in that Article I are, that, are those that are granted. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in the Congress of the United States. It doesn't say here invested, herein granted shall be vested in the executive and, and Congress of the United States. It doesn't say that, and that's, of course, the crux of my nine presidents who screwed up America. All legislative powers are held by Congress, not the executive branch or the judicial branch. They're held by Congress that are granted to them. The states granted those powers. They can take them back. They didn't cede sovereignty over foreign policy. They granted power for a central authority in the collective to handle foreign policy because they thought the states couldn't do this individually. They granted the ability for the central authority to raise money through taxes. But that means they can also rescind that authority if they want to. Essentially, they granted power to the central authority to do things that they didn't think the states could do individually as effectively. But that does not mean that they got rid of those powers forever. It means they can be rescinded. If you grant a power, you can rescind it. Just as if you engage in a constitution, in a compact, you can secede. If you accede to a compact, you can secede from a compact. That's simple contract law. All contracts are perpetual, but English law has always established that contracts are not permanent and they are not binding in, perpet in perpetuity uh, forever. They, they, they're not. Uh, they can be broken by one party or the other. Now, a contract that has an end date uh, you go into a contract, you say, we're going to get out of the contract on this particular day. Well, that's a little different. You have a one-year contract or a two-year contract. But if you don't have an end date on it, well, then it's perpetual until one party or the other agrees to cancel the contract. That's how contracts work. So this was a contract or a compact between the states of ratifying the same. So sovereignty, though, cannot be given up. You have it or you don't. The central authority has no sovereignty. It has granted powers, granted by the states. This is very important to understand when you're talking to people about which government is supreme. Even that supremacy clause, when it says all, you know, it says uh, that, the, that the acts of the central government, which are in pursuance of the Constitution, all treaties and laws made in pursuance of the Constitution, pursuance thereof, are the supreme law of the land. That doesn't mean it's sovereign. 
It just means that these things that are granted in this Constitution, because they have to be made in pursuance of the Constitution, all that simply means is that those powers, the states have to abide by that because they granted those powers. As long as they're made in pursuance of the Constitution, once they exceed that, if they go beyond the scope of the Constitution, they're no longer supreme. These are important concepts to get. And I wish that uh, every member of the U.S. Congress understood this and that every member of the state legislatures understood this because if they did, we would have a lot, uh, a lot different federal structure. The states would be doing a lot more and the federal government a lot less. All right, so that's one point I wanted to make. The other point had to do with secession. And I've seen this question before. Uh, and it's a very difficult question to answer for a lot of people. So I'm going to answer it for you and how it works. The question was this. Some people would say that secession is legal for the 13 original states because they created the Constitution, so that the original 13 states do have the authority to secede from the Union. And you might make a case for Texas and maybe Hawaii, because Hawaii was essentially an independent country before the United States annexed it. So those would be the only states that would have a clear-cut right of secession because they were all independent states before they agreed to the Union at any particular time. But the rest of the United States, the rest of the states, have no right to secession because they were created by the general government. They were territories of the general government, and then they were created by the general government. So how do you answer this question? It's a very important question to answer because it gets to the heart of can secession happen for any state in the United States? Well, as we're seeing throughout the world, secession is something that's possible when a people want to do it. Uh, we saw it in the Soviet Union. We're seeing people talk about it. We're seeing Brexit, right? I mean, it was essentially a secession now from, from the European Union. I mean, the European Union didn't think that— uh, Now, it, it did have language in the European Union. This could, this could happen, but a lot of people didn't think it was possible. But Great Britain has done it. Now, people would say, well, yeah, but Great Britain was an independent country for years before it uh, gave some of its authority, delegated some of its authority, or— granted some authority to the European Union. And so now they rescinded that, and they took it back for themselves, or at least at some point they will. So there's no comparison between the U.S. states and Great Britain. But this is simply not true. You see, the European Union in many ways was like the U.S. Constitution. It was a compact between these countries, and they agreed to it. Now, but what about this idea that these states were carved out of territory and then that they cannot they cannot secede because they were created by the central authority. Well, this is, this is actually incorrect. First, you can look at this in a couple of ways. The American colonial experience, and I'll get into the, the main argument against this in a second, but the American colonial experience showed, I mean, all these American colonies were carved out of common territory that the British Empire held, and then they created these states out of that. So the American colonial experience is clearly on the side that it doesn't matter how these areas were carved out, the people still decide. Okay. Now, 
when you move forward in time, so we have that colonial experience model. Okay, so you had 13 colonies. They were all colonies. They weren't, they weren't states. They were common property of the British Empire. And that then they became states through an organic process. The people of the colonies then created states. So there's one of the most important concepts to get, okay? And I'll get into that more in a second. So as you move forward, and we've gotten independence now, and these 13 independent states, free and independent states, have now declared their independence from Great Britain, and they formed a union, an Articles of Confederation, a federation of independent states. They had common property, though, that was acquired by Virginia during the American War for Independence. This later became the Northwest Territory. And through the Land Ordinance and then Northwest Ordinance, this area was, was organized. The Northwest Ordinance, though, is key in this because the Northwest Ordinance established the parameters by which these, this territory could become states. Now, you can say, well, that just disproves your whole point. The, the general government created these states. Not so fast. First of all, any state created in the Northwest Ordinance was on quote, equal footing with the existing states, meaning they would not be states that had lesser status. They would not be uh, sub-states of the original 13 states. They would have equal footing. This is in the language of the ordinance itself. They would be on equal footing with the existing states. So they would be the same as the state of Virginia or the state of Massachusetts or the state of Pennsylvania or the state of Georgia. They would be the same. They would not be different types of states. They would be the same states. So there is one argument that shows that the founding generation considered any new states that were carved out of any territory that they had, they would be on existing footing, or I should say equal footing, with the existing states. Now the second thing, how are these states created? They're created by the people of the territory. And there's a very good speech on this particular issue that John C. Calhoun made in defense of Michigan coming into the Union. And you might be saying, Joe, wait, wait a second, John C. Calhoun was the uh, defender of the South. John C. Calhoun was a Unionist who understood how states work. And most importantly, he understood the people of Michigan were coming into the Union. And how did this happen? So Michigan, through a convention, created a constitution, and they petitioned the U.S. Congress for admission to the Union as a state. In essence, the people created the state. You had to have a certain population to do it. It was very small, you know, about 30,000. But the people created a state. So that actually gets to an important point. You know, how large, how many people do you have to have to have a state? Well, the founding generation thought about 30,000 people. That's all you needed to create a state. I mean, that's the size of, of many uh, you know, small to mid-sized cities. I should say mid-sized cities in the United States, about 30,000 people. So if the founding generation thought 30,000 people was enough, I mean, imagine how many states you could have on the North American continent. You could have states within cities. You could have a city with several states. With all the, the powers of those. Now, of course, States can't be carved out of existing states without the permission of the state. That also shows the states have authority in this, have sovereignty, okay? 
the general government can't just say, you know what, we're going to carve a state out of this, and so you're going to deal with it. No, the state has to agree to it. It has to be organic. This is why the state of West Virginia is completely illegal, but that's a whole other podcast as well. So you have a state created in Michigan by the people. Now, the process, what happened was the, the U.S. Congress didn't like what Michigan was doing, so they said we're not going to agree to that particular uh, statehood petition. We're going to say we're going to create a convention that's going to agree with what we want. Now, the general government cannot do that. They did it, though, in some ways with Michigan. This set a very dangerous precedent. The general government doesn't get to determine the convention of the people to create a state. The people do that themselves. So the people create states. Again, this is an organic process. And if the people created the state just like they did with the original 13 states, and they then accede to the Constitution on equal footing with the existing states, then any state created that way can then secede from the same compact. So... I know this is technical, but it's important to understand. When somebody says, well, you know, I know that Texas could secede, and uh, maybe Virginia, and maybe Massachusetts, well, uh, those states could secede, but all these other states, you know, Indiana can't secede, and uh, Alabama can't secede, and uh, Oklahoma can't secede. That was uh, was the Indian Territory. They can't secede, and uh, definitely, uh, you know, you've got uh, states out west like Nevada. That can't secede. It, It was created by the general government. Idaho can't secede. Sure they could. Because all of those states were created by the people thereof. On equal footing with the existing states. That precedent that was established in the Northwest Ordinance applied to any state that came into the Union anywhere. This was actually the crux of the debate with Missouri as well. Missouri was petitioning to come into the Union with a constitution that some people didn't like in the Union. And there was an attempt to tell Missouri what they had to do in their own state constitution, and that's illegal. The general government cannot do that. only thing they can do is guarantee a Republican form of government. That's it. And this point was made over and over again. You can only guarantee a Republican form of government. Now, that's the only coercive power the central authority has over the states. If somehow a state decides to create a monarchy, well, the state can't do that as per the Constitution. The general government then has a right to intervene in that regard. But that's it. That's it. As long as the government is Republican in form, the general government has no control over that state government. As long as the state does not violate Article 1, Section 10, the general government has no control over that state government. And there's not a whole lot in Article 1, Section 10. These are, the, these are the things that the states agreed not to do because they were delegating these powers or granting these same powers to the central authority. It was things like coin money. Uh, they could only use gold and silver as payment and legal tender, you know, as legal tender and, and payment for debt. Excuse me. Uh, they agreed not to create treaties or alliances with foreign powers, these type of things because the central authority had those powers, those legislative powers. But they can always rescind those powers because they had the authority to grant those powers. So these are very important concepts when you're talking with people about federalism, what powers do the states have, 
what powers does the general government have? Those, those powers are granted by the states, the people of the states, because the people of the states created that constitution. The people of the states agree to accede to that constitution when they come into the union as a state. As a state, we don't have the United States. We have the United States. State is a conscious term. These are things that you have to understand. It's fundamental. It's the fundamental building block of the American Union, a union of states. It's a more perfect union under the Constitution than it is under the Articles of Confederation, but it's the same union. It's not a union of people. It never has been. It's a union of states, people of the states. So you have to get these concepts and these terms right or you blow up your entire argument. So the people of an area create a state. 30,000 is all it took. They create the state. That state comes into the union on equal footing with the existing states. Therefore, it accedes to the compact. And that compact granted powers to the central authority. Legislative powers, executive powers, judicial powers to the central authority. But because it granted them, it can rescind them at any time. So it's a bottom-up structure from the beginning, not a top-down. The central authority has no top-down power that the states, the people of the states, don't give it. And they never cede their sovereignty. That can't happen. The central authority really has no sovereignty. It has powers. It's only supreme when it passes laws or treaties in pursuance of the Constitution. If it doesn't, those treaties or laws are void. Alexander Hamilton even said this. They're void. Now, of course, he was saying that to get the Constitution ratified, then he did the exact opposite once he got into power. That'll be the point of my newest book. Okay, so I'm going to talk about how Hamilton lied quite a bit and how he created things out of thin air. So, now, I get into all this as well in my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution. Again, I'd highly recommend you get those books, uh, you know, signed by me on my website. Go out there and pick them up. So um, please do that. But um, you have to get these terms correct when you're talking to people about these things because if you don't, it's going to mess up your entire argument. So next time you hear somebody say, well, you know, the original 13 states can secede and all the rest, now you know how to answer that question. And I hope you found this informative, and I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.